Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're we're once again at a moment, a moment which seems to come around not infrequently these days, a moment when normal taunts us, signals to us, misleads us. Hey, you're getting back to me. And then something intervenes, usually. Old Mr. COVID pokes his head around again. Um, of course, normal is over, not to... Um, not to denigrate or uh, in any way minimize the suffering that people have experienced during this uh, pandemic period. But, you know, normal can be overrated, too. Um, I uh, I had my hopes up earlier this week when there were early, well, it was midweek, I guess, early indications that they were going to call this uh, new variant by the uh, Greek letter new and you spelled in English Greeks of course spell it with a new and uh, I you know because it's it was a it was a cross-cultural moment that was promised and, and which I found exciting because in Yiddish the word new means so or well you know like an expression of impatience which I thought was great great way to name a a prolonger of the non-normal, but no, we got another, another letter instead. Um, and it's you know it's as it's just another turn of the screw, another ride around the uh, the COVID carousel, uh, with all that implies. Most of it unpleasant, but I I you know you know me, ladies and gentlemen, I like to look on the bright side. Yeah, it's Harry, um, and. Thanks to COVID, I've been able to achieve a goal I've been carrying around for a lifetime. I finally have gotten to learn the Greek alphabet. Hello, welcome to the show. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns, bring on the lovers, liars and clowns. Old situations, new complications, nothing portentous or polite. Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Something convulsive, something repulsive, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something aesthetic, something frenetic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with gods, nothing with fate. Weighty affairs will just have to wait. Nothing that's formal. Nothing that's normal. No recitations to recite. Open up the curtains. 
Something erratic, something dramatic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Frenzy and frolic, strictly symbolic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. a clue or a cue from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. Remembering Stephen Sondheim, that was his first show. And I was privileged to see it in person with that guy, the guy who was singing most of the song. Zero Mostel. You may never have heard of him. He was famous at the time mainly for having been a blacklisted actor. Couldn't get work in Hollywood. So he went back to New York, and uh, he was a weighty man. I'm being nice now. But when, when he got on stage, something really miraculous happened, and he seemed to have been granted the power to defeat the law of gravity, and he, he moved on stage that way in that show. Now, um... You know, uh, I talk on this program a lot about the uh, the world of the godly, mainly how the institutions act and behave or misbehave. Don't really talk about what people believe because, you know, that's their business. On the other hand, there's a, a, a real 
American religion, not the ceremonial kind, but the one that actually lives in people's hearts, that I do deride um, without guilt or fear, and it is the belief in public opinion polling. We appear to believe it. We appear to believe that stuff, or we're being dealt with as if we do by the by the media. I, you know, in some ways, there's no real difference between the two. If they treat us as if we believe it, we believe it, or we put we put up with it if we don't believe it. Uh, all of which is by way of introducing this week's edition of. News of the Olympic Movement. What does it have to do with public opinion polling? Stay tuned. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. Deadline Paris. World Athletics President Sebastian Coe, yeah, he used to run, this week described as disturbing the results of a study conducted during the Tokyo Summer Olympics. The purpose of the study? To identify and address targeted abusive messages sent to athletes through social media. The survey, to gain an understanding of the level of online abuse in athletics, drew its findings from a sample of 161 Twitter handles of current and former athletes involved in the Olympics. This was taken from a list of 200 athletes selected by World Athletics. The online accounts were tracked during the study period one week prior to the Olympic opening ceremony, concluding the day after the Olympic closing ceremony. The survey found that 23 of the athletes received targeted abuse with 16 of those being women. 115 of the 132 identified abusive posts were directed at female athletes. Female athletes received 87% of all abuse, this according to Agence France Prof. Two athletes, both black and female, received 63% of abuse. Unfounded doping accusations made up 25% of abusive messages. 10% consisted of transphobic and homophobic posts. 89% of racist abuse was targeted at U.S. athletes, despite them representing only 23% of the study set. The two most common categories of abuse were of a sexist or racist nature, 29 and 26%. This research is disturbing in so many ways, said Coe. What strikes me, he said, the most, is that the abuse is targeted at individuals who are celebrating and sharing their performances and talent as a way to inspire and motivate people. To face the kinds of abuse they have is unfathomable, and we all need to do more to stop this. Shining a light on the issue is just the first step, he said. In the study time frame, 240,000 tweets were captured for analysis. This included text analysis through searches for slurs, offensive images and emojis, and other phrases that could indicate abuse. It also used natural language processing, employing artificial intelligence software to detect threats by understanding the relationship between words, allowing it to determine the difference between, for example, you killed it 
and I'll kill you. Not really public opinion polling. But still a survey. Difference is the athletes didn't have to be at home to answer the phone. And one more item of news of the Olympic movement. A little less inspiring even than that. The head of the Brazilian Olympic Committee for more than two decades, Carlos Arthur Newsman, has been sentenced to 30 years and 11 months in jail. Oh, he knows it's a movement. And he knows we need one every day. But he allegedly bought votes for Rio de Janeiro, Janeiro to host the 2016 Olympics. The ruling by the judge, Marcelo Bretas, became public this week. That's how we know about it. Nuzman, who also added the Rio 2016 organizing committee, so he, uh, he had his hands in the Olympics in a lot of different ways. Was found guilty of corruption, criminal organization, money laundering, and tax evasion. The complete package, you might say. 79-year-old will not be jailed until all his appeals are heard. Bretas, the judge, also sentenced to jail the former governor Sergio Cabral, the businessman Arthur Suarez, and Leonardo Greiner, he was Rio 2016 Committee Director General of Operations. That sounds like a major guy. Investigators say all three and Newsman coordinated to bribe the former president of the International Association of Athletics Federations, Lamin Diak, as well as his son, ironically named Papa Masada Diak, for votes. Papa Masada Diak has previously denied the allegations and accused Cabral that is the former Rio governor, of trying to cut a deal. Lamin Diak, the former head of the uh, Association of Athletics Federations, was sentenced to four years in jail in September 20 by a French court uh, in uh, relation to money laundering and corruption over Russian doping. That, of course, happened in France. Ah, the French. Well, well. That's how they do. Papa Masadiak, the son, was sentenced in absentia to five years in prison and fined a million pounds. Both said they were going to appeal, but that's now a year and a half ago. Don't seem very appealing to me. Cabral, who's been in jail since 2016 and faces a series of other convictions and investigations, told the judge two years ago he'd paid about $2 million in exchange for up to six votes in the International Committee Olympic Committee meeting that awarded Rio the 2016 Games. He said the money come to him from a debt owed to him by Suarez, or Suarez. Cabral, who governed Rio State between 2003 and 2010, added another 500000 was paid later to the son named Papa, you with me, with the aim of securing three more IOC members' votes. Those, no, aren't, those votes aren't cheap. 
Breda's ruling enables Nuzman as one of the main responsibles for the promotion and the organization of the criminal scheme, given his position in the Brazilian Olympic Committee and before international authorities. Judge also said the sports executive, quote, headed and coordinated action of the other agencies, or the other agents, clearly is a leader to garnish support illegally at the IOC. The judge uh, will send the results of the investigation to authorities in Senegal and France, where uh, Papa Masata Diak and Lamine Diak live, respectively. Rio beat Chicago, Tokyo, and Madrid. That don't come cheap. The investigation in Brazil began a year after the Games, when the French newspaper Le Monde found members of the IOC had been bribed three days before the meeting in Copenhagen at which Rio was picked to host the Games. We had told last minute, but you wanted him, you wanted him to remember the money, I think. I think that makes sense. It all makes sense. It makes dollars and cents because it's, the, it's a movement. And, uh, you know, movements don't move free. Let's put it that way. And um, now here's news of the land of 15,000 princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. And um, this is basically, if you want to look at it on the sunny side of the ledger, it's just how short are memories these days? Mm -hmm. It's just a, it's just a, a thing that we can enjoy is the shortness of memory. Hollywood is uh, warming to Saudi Arabian money. One more time, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Well, Hollywood likes money. You know, what are you going to do? They got it. You can't hate them forever, can you, really? In April 2018, Hollywood power players gave a, um, a royal treatment to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, lobbying and jockeying for a chance to tap into the country's $500 billion public investment fund and expanding market share. In the wake of the murder, though, of the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, six months later, you may remember that was attributed to Saudi government agents, the show business industry publicly eschewed the relationship with the Saudis. We don't need your money. We can have less money. Now it's three years later. The freeze appears to be thawing. Saudi Arabia is kicking, up, uh, kicking off a big month of showbiz activity, featuring such notables as Justin Bieber, Anthony Mackie, and director Joe Wright. In just about a week, two studios will launch a musical directed by Wright, Cyrano. That sounds Arabian as the opening night film at the Red Sea Film Festival at Saudi Arabia's first major international film event. God, do I want to be on the red carpet there, don't, don't you? The movie stars Peter Dinklage, Haley Bennett, and Kelvin Harrison Jr. This is big stuff, ladies and gentlemen. It'll be screened at the 11-day festival alongside Netflix's The Lost Daughter, Belfast from Focus Features, and Universal's Sing 2, all awards season contenders, according to The Hollywood Reporter, 
as well as an assortment of Arabic features. No, they're talking about films. While the guest list hasn't yet been confirmed, a couple of the stars are expected to attend. And at the same time as the film festival rolls out in Jeddah, Bieber, Jason Derudo, and ASAP Rocky are scheduled to perform at the Formula One Saudi Arabian Grand Prix in, in Jeddah, same city. Meanwhile, the biggest, biggest film production the country has ever welcomed already is underway. Desert Warrior, starring Mackie and Sharito Copley, and from the writer-director of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. It's shooting in the province of Tabuk. I don't, didn't just pick that out of a hat. Well, they don't wear hats, but... No, it's the site of the planned megacity, Neom, making it the first major project to film there. Well, that's a feather in the hat of Neom, wouldn't you? Uh, no, again, no hats. No hats, milady. And uh, another action film, Kandahar, which is about a city in Afghanistan, strangely enough, is not going to be filmed in Afghanistan, let alone in Kandahar. It's going to be in production in Saudi Arabia, in an area called Ayula, an area recently heavily promoted as a filming destination. Its own film commission launched this year. I think this will kind of be the turning point, says a Dubai-based producer whose film Maskoon is premiering at the festival. <laughs> this all sounds so good, doesn't it? It's got, it's got See It Now written all over it. That uh, film, a thriller, was shot in Jeddah with a crew from both Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Recent developments would suggest the country's pariah status isn't being treated as such by power brokers, says the Hollywood Reporter. There already were signs last year with Jackie Chan, Jason Momoa, Momoa, Shah Rukh Khan speaking at a conference in Riyadh, and... Spike Lee and Oliver Stone set uh, in March, a year and a half ago, to attend the inaugural Red Sea Film Festival, which ultimately didn't happen because of the thing. They had both Spike Lee and Oliver Stone, ladies and gentlemen. So they had something in mind, some, some specific thing in mind. I'm guessing. That's just me. So good news for the land of 15,000 princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Hollywood likes you again. And now, news of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Yes, it's our friend the Atom poking his attractive head into everything. The cost of two nuclear reactors being built in Georgia is now $28.5 billion. That's more than twice the original price tag. We complain about inflation, but, you know, they just the nuclear people just have to swallow it. Or, no, the uh, ratepayers do. Uh, the uh, other owners of plant Votal as it's called, argue that Georgia Power Company has triggered an agreement requiring Georgia Power to shoulder a larger share of the financial burden. So they're fussing among themselves 
about who's going to pay more for the pay more. You can have a word called pay for. You can have a word called pay more. I don't care. We are proceeding now, says a smiling Jari Villan, Finland's ambassador for Barents and Northern Dimension. That is another story. Projects aimed to improve nuclear safety. There's some of the few successful areas for cooperation still going strong between the EU and Russia. In roughly two years' time, we will have, he says, the understanding on what and how it can be done, what type of technology has to be used. This is with reference to two old Soviet submarines. They're colorfully named K-159 and K-27. Where are they now? Rusting on the Arctic seabed. Why do we care? They've got highly radioactive spent nuclear fuel elements in their reactors at the bottom of the Arctic. The uh, gentleman quoted was the ambassador from Finland. The sunken submarines are the potential source of contamination of the Arctic, the riskiest ones, he says. Assessments made by the European Union together with Rosatom, the Russian nuclear outfit, show that in 20 to 30 years' time, the metals will start corroding. There's a genuine risk of leakage. Now, I'm talking about the... uh, the submarines. Therefore, lifting them in the coming decade is extremely important, he says. I'm happy to, we are making progress, and a decision to make a technical review has been decided by the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Although raising hot subs is neither reconstruction nor development. Hopefully, when those technical reviews are done, we will come to a phase where we can make decisions on a lifting operation, the ambassador says, with enthusiasm according to the Barents Observer. The Barents is the sea in the Arctic where the subs are located. Lifting a a nuclear submarine from the seabed is nothing new. It's difficult but doable. In 2002, the Dutch salvage company Mamoet managed to raise the ill-fated Kursk. (laughs) Ill-fated Kursk submarine from the Barents Sea. A special barge was built with wires attached underneath. The wreck of the Kursk was safely brought in and placed in a dry dock where the decommissioning took place. The two rusty nuclear subs, K-27 and K-159, represent ticking radioactive time bombs for the Arctic and its environment. K-159 sank in late 2003 in August, late August, while being towed in bad weather towards uh, a shipyard north of Murmansk. Researchers have since then monitored the wreck, fearing leakages of radioactivity from two old nuclear reactors on board. A joint Norwegian-Russian expedition in 2014 concluded no leakage has so far occurred from the reactors to the surrounding environment, but the bad shape of the hull could eventually lead to radioactive stuff leaking out. The two onboard reactors on that ship contain about 800 kilograms of spent nuclear fuel, Yes, I don't know what 800 kilograms is, and I probably never will. A pulse discharge of the entire cesium-137 inventory from the two reactors could increase concentrations in cod in the eastern part of the sea, up to 100 times current levels for a two-year period. According to the Norwegian Institute of Marine Research, while a cesium increase of 100 times in cod 
sounds dramatic, the levels would still be below international guidelines. Those must be really high guidelines, but that increase could still make it difficult to market the fish. There'd be a lot of spare cod. K-27, the other submarine in, in urgency to lift, was on purpose dumped in the sea way back in 1982. Divers this year in September conducted a survey of the submarine's hull. Metal pieces were cut three. The thickness of the hull was measured along with other inspections of the submarine that has been corroding on the seabed for nearly 40 years. The need to lift dangerous nuclear materials from the seabed was highlighted as a priority at the Arctic Council meeting this past spring. Russia has also actively promoted a cleanup of nuclear waste in its northern regions, including with Norway and the EU. While the mentality in Soviet times was out of sight, out of mind, the um, logical place to bury Hot subs was the Kara Sea, ice covered for most of the year. That's changing now with rapidly retreating sea ice and drilling for oil and gas as well as increased international shipping. So you see, getting warmer in the Arctic is going to make them deal with those subs. Two Congress members here in the United States are asking the U.S. Department of Energy to provide more information about the effects of U.S. nuclear waste in the Marshall Islands. This is coming to the forefront of some attention now. Suddenly, the U.S. conducted 67 nuclear weapons tests in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1958, exposing the Marshallese people to radiation that continues to have health and environmental implications. The U.S. then stored the waste at Runit Dome. That's a concrete dome on Eniwetok Atoll, where there was, an, I believe, we exploded an H-bomb, too. We messed with that place. A representative, Katie Porter, from Orange County, California, has been seeking more details about the effects of nuclear testing in the Marshalls in the wake of an L.A. Times investigation that found U.S. stored nuclear waste from Nevada in the dome without informing the Marshall Islands, which is an actual nation. Porter has now asked for documents and correspondence among Department of Energy officials related to a letter officials sent to the Marshall Islands about the nuclear waste earlier this year. No comment from the Department of Energy. That dome that where waste is being stored, that's leaking. The Energy Department says the leaking isn't significant. I have a feeling they want it to not be significant. It's not in any immediate danger of collapse or failure, says the Energy Department. The U.S. has for decades enrolled survivors from two atolls in a program that provides access to medical care and treatment. Seventy-seven are still participating, so we know how they're doing. Porter and a fellow congressperson criticized the agency's lack of response to repeated document requests, raising concerns about conflicting Energy Department testimony and the timing of the letter. The U.S. happens to be in the midst of renegotiating a treaty with the Marshall Islands that gives U.S. military strategic denial rights over the country's surrounding air and waters, you know, where the stuff might be leaking into. 
2014 study analyzed how the radiation exposure in the Marshall Islands increased the risk of certain cancers there, especially thyroid cancer. A communications director for the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission said if you were to ask a group of young Marshallese people if they knew someone with cancer, almost 90% of them would raise their hands. Well, see, they can still raise their hands. We haven't. Um, Now to another story from Plymouth, Massachusetts. One of the options being considered by the company that's decommissioning the closed Pilgrim nuclear power station is to release around one million gallons of potentially radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. The option had been discussed briefly with state officials as one possible way to get rid of water from the spent fuel pool, the reactor vessel, and other components of the facility. So we won't be fishing in old Cape Cod Bay very much longer. And speaking of which, you may remember earlier in the history of this broadcast, I discussed with you one of the mitigation procedures that TEPCO was taking at uh, Fook to prevent the further infusion of water into the area, which was irradiating the water, which they then had to store in ponds or pools or tanks. You're welcome. Um, to avoid having to do what TEPCO is now going to do, which is dump that water in their ocean. The uh, mitigating factor was supposed to be an ice wall that would prevent water from getting in to the nuclear facility. Well, this week, oh, and I, I did mock the ice wall. Well, I spoofed the ice wall. I didn't mock it. I gently spoofed it. Ice wall, ladies and gentlemen. This week, TEPCO announced it's going to uh, do some remedial works at the nuke plant in Fook to strengthen the ice wall that's intended to stem the flow of groundwater because it's melting. The ice wall, what do you think it would do? The work could begin as early as the start of next month. This is part of a costly and troubled effort to secure the site following the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. The ice wall is intended to limit the seepage of groundwater into the plant. It's going to be releasing more than a million tons of water into the ocean. The water contains tritium, which cannot be removed. That's a stubborn old nuclear component, Mr. old Mr. Tritium. So, yes, who could have imagined the ice wall would be melting. News of our friend, the atom.
I believe that's about a, d- a different Black Friday. But we've just had one here in the United States. Uh, early reports indicate that uh, sales, we got to care about the sales, have been uh, okay. Um, there were fears that uh, it would, this year's retail explosion <laughs> would uh, be dimmed by the continuation of the pandemic. Uh, we only heard about the uh, the newest variant on Friday, so it probably couldn't have had much effect on uh, Black Friday sales. But of course, what's being blamed for any problem there, as well as the inflation that's currently going on in the United States, are supply chain issues. We're hearing those words spoken a lot for about the last two or three months. Supply chain issues, not enough chips to put in cars, which now run on chips. If only they did. If only you could just get a bag full and pour it into your tank. Uh, But cars do run on chips, and uh, so there aren't enough chips, so there aren't enough cars, which is raising the price of cars. And chips, but there aren't only. And um, there are other kinds of shortages. Now there's reporting that certain companies, names not provided yet, have been taking advantage of all the news reports about supply chain troubles to uh, raise prices anyway, even if they're not having supply chain troubles. And we, the reason we know this is they're bragging about it on their earnings calls to shareholders. Kind of brave of them to do, do that, knowing that some shareholders would rat on them. Um, but yes, it seems that there are supply, supply chain problems everywhere even at the North Pole. Dancer is trapped in a warehouse in Nome. He can fly, but he can't get cleared to go home. Blitzen is schwitzen in a Miami port. That's got Santa in small claims court. This year the North Pole is feeling the pains. Santa Claus is shackled by supply chains. Season home just west of St. Paul. Mrs. Claus doesn't have the ingredients to bake her traditional night before Christmas cake. The sleigh is stuck with last year's rains. Santa Claus is shackled. By supply chains
The Apologies of the Week. All right, that's three sorries. That's my cue. A photographer has apologized for her ignorance after a photo she took for Dior was accused of depicting a Chinese woman in a stereotypical way. Chen Man's portrait, which was shot for Dior, featured a model with, quote, small eyes, unquote, according to some Chinese inter- internet users. The photograph was displayed in a Shanghai exhibition for Dior. It was also criticized by some prominent media outlets in China. The 41-year-old's portrait of a Chinese woman sparked outrage online, some accusing the photo of portraying an East Asian person in a stereotypical and offensive way. The Beijing Daily accused Chen Man of playing up to Western brands and depicting the model in the piece from a Western perspective. The newspaper described the subject of the photo as having, quote, sinister eyes and a, quote, gloomy face. Sounds Chinese. No, it doesn't. Some users of Weibo, a Chinese social media site, have called for a boycott of Dior products. Chen Man, the photographer, took to Weibo to issue an apology. She said she blames herself for, quote, immaturity and ignorance, unquote. She was born and raised in China, says she deeply loves her country, and says she has a responsibility to document Chinese culture and showcase Chinese beauty through her work. Quote, I will educate myself on Chinese history, attend more relevant events, and improve my ideologies, her statement read. Yeah, that statement sounds like it was written by um, somebody other than the individual quoted as saying it. American Anthropological Association President Akhil Gutta issued an apology to indigenous peoples on behalf of the association, Anthropological Association, for the, quote, traumatic effects of anthropology's enduring legacy on indigenous communities. Continuing the quote, since its inception, the history of American anthropology has been intertwined with the record of extractive research conducted on indigenous communities. Anthropologists have often assigned themselves the status of expert over the cultural narratives and social histories of the first cultures of the Americas. As experts, many anthropologists have neither respected indigenous knowledge and community contributions, nor addressed the intended and unintended impacts of anthropological research on those communities. Anthropology must explicitly address the need to change its ways, unquote. The head anthropologist. 
The Church of Sweden delivered a public apology this week for its role in, quote, legitimized repression, unquote, and centuries of, quote, mistreatment and complacency, unquote, toward the Sami people. The apology to leaders of the regional indigenous groups took place in the Cathedral of Uppsala. The apology is the first of two outlined in a statement released this past June by the Church of Sweden declaring some commitments toward ongoing reconciliation with the Sami people. There'll be another public apology next October. Non-Sami and Sami people, as well as Lutheran church leaders from neighboring Nordic countries encircled a flame at the front of the cathedral. Archbishop referenced the gospel story in Luke of the woman who suffered a crooked back for 18 years as Archbishop of the Church of Sweden. I stand before you, the Sami, and confess we have not engaged with you at eye level. We have been curved inward on ourselves. We have not stood up to racism and abuse of power. Our backs are bent by the guilt we carry. See, it was a parable kind of deal. We've placed unjust burdens on you. We have burdened your ancestors with shame and pain that has been inherited by new generations. We cannot undo what has been done, but we can feel remorse for our part in Sweden's colonial history. Them too, see? Returning to the quote, we can feel remorse for our inability and unwillingness to accept the truth and meet you at eye level. Unquote. The Sami shared personal accounts of mistreatment and the colonization of Sami land and horrific boarding school experiences inflicted on the Sami people. This was a technique apparently the colonizers used all over the northern hemisphere of the Western world. Canada. Oh, not only the northern hemisphere, Australia. It's a system. An Australian TV journalist has apologized for failing to listen to Adele's new record ahead of an interview with her. Well, that doesn't quite compare, really, with the uh, previous apology in terms of its seriousness, ladies and gentlemen. But that's the wonderful thing about the Apologies of the Week. They, they have such a broad range, don't you see? I do. An Australian TV journalist, I said, has apologized for failing to listen to Adele's new record. Matt Duran, who co-hosts, co-hosts Weekend Sunrise on Channel 7, traveled to London for a camera crew with a camera crew for an exclusive interview with her. It took place earlier this month. It won't be aired Adele's label reputedly refused to allow the footage to be shown after the host told the singer he hadn't heard her new album. Sony Music did not respond to a request for comment. See? See what happens when you don't listen to the music? Um, Colorado Republican Congressperson Lauren Boebert apologized. She had told an audience about an encounter with another congressperson, Representative Ilan Omar of Minnesota, Democrat, in the Capitol, describing it as, not my first jihad squad moment. And she went on in a similar vein, sort of leaving the impression that Omar might be a terrorist, saying, I'm a suicide bomber, is no laughing matter, Omar tweeted. Bober did get a laugh from her audience when she said that. I apologize to anyone in the Muslim community I offended with my comment about Representative Omar, said Bobert. I've reached out to her office to speak with her directly. 
unquote. We don't know if Representative Omar has condescended to speak with uh, Boebert. A private investigator said he was part of a ruthless media culture that robbed Prince Harry of a normal life. Gavin Burroughs apologized for his previous behavior. He appeared in a BBC documentary exploring Prince Harry and Prince William's relationships with the media. I was basically part of a group of people who robbed him of his normal teenage years, said Burroughs, who apparently is unaware that uh, normal teenage years aren't necessarily that hot. A local politician in Italy apologized for referring to a well-known Holocaust survivor by her concentration camp number, Tattoo, in a Facebook comment criticizing her support for public health measures relating to COVID-19. And finally, 1980s pop singer Tiffany has publicly apologized for cursing at fans during an ill-fated concert last week at Iron Oak Post in downtown Melbourne. She was swearing at fans while struggling to sing her 1987 chart-topping hit, I Think We're Alone Now. The video went viral. She apologized to fans later this past week and to attendees during a two-minute video posted on Instagram saying she's been horrified for the last couple of days. I panicked. It's not often I lose my voice, and I got up there, and I just absolutely had a panic attack. And out of my frustration, I said things that I don't mean at all. I love you guys so very, very much. Wow. She took it out on the fans. Well, an appropriate apology indeed. The Apology of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And no, this is not Tiffany.
No Shondells were harmed during the making of this record. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time on the same radio stations and at a time of your choosing on the audio device of your choice. Can't make it any easier than that. If I could, well, I don't know. And it would be just like self-defense laws growing up. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip to the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pan Halstead, to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address of this program, yes, this program has an email address, as well as a playlist of the music you hear here, and... Your chance, dwindling though it be, to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com. And me, <laughs> I'm the Harry Shearer on Twitter. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans. Flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.